This is AutoLine This Week, the show that gets you inside the global automotive industry. Underwriting for the production of AutoLine This Week has been provided by RSM. challenges specific to your business by working with trusted advisors who help turn obstacles into opportunities. Experience the power of being understood. RSM, audit, tax and consulting for the middle market. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. Thanks for joining us on AutoLine this week. Today we're going to be talking about the USMCA, the trade agreement that's going to replace NAFTA. Or is it? What's that trade agreement all about? Is it ever going to get ratified? We're going to get to the bottom of some of this today because I've got three experts, including Kristen Gicek. She's the Vice President of Industry, Labor, and Economics at the Center for Automotive Research in Ann Arbor. Les Glick is the co-chair of International Trade and Customs at the law firm Butzel Long. And Joe Brusuelis is the chief economist for RSM. And thank you all for joining us today. Thank you. You're welcome. Kristen, I'll throw it out to you first. What are the main differences between NAFTA and the USMCA? Well, NAFTA had, you know, it's been in place since 1994. It has a very uh, set list of products that are considered uh, content that we look for, the tracing list. And if the products are on that, then you've got to make sure that that's originating within North America. The new agreement covers almost all entire content of the vehicle. It also adds uh, requirements for how much steel and aluminum have to be made in the United States, adds a labor value content, um, and it just adds layers and layers of, of, of conforming uh, requirements for for manufacturers within North America to, in order to trade without tariff. Mm-hmm. Less anything else that you think? Well, you, you know, I know we're out? focusing mostly on auto, but I think when they started to do the new agreement, it was supposed to be a new, improved, updated NAFTA. And there are some things that are new, improved, updated, like digital trade. There was no internet when NAFTA first came out. And now we have a chapter on digital trade, affects auto industry as well as anybody else. So there's a, there's a lot of it modernizing NAFTA, I think, is one of the big accomplishments. Yep. Joe? Yeah. All right. Well, I think the main thing to look at here is that the new portions of the new NAFTA, 77% of it was drawn from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That's a good updated in Fards Pharma. It includes digital. It includes a provision for small and medium-sized enterprises to actually begin to take advantage of the bountiful opportunities in cross-border trade. But I think when you you take a look at it, what are the two big things? Okay, one, you've got the wage floor of $16, and two, you've got the content rules of 40 to 45% must be produced uh, by workers who are making that wage, meeting that wage floor. That's going to be very difficult over the medium to long term. However, in the short term, it will redound and provide benefits for U.S. domestic auto producers. Now, the time frame on that, because of the lengthy delay in putting this on the floor in the Congress may actually shorten up those benefits, and I'm sure we'll want to get into that today. Yeah, no, let's get into it right now. In fact, uh, th- let's explain the $16, wage, $16 yep. an hour wage. A given proportion or number of components in a car have to be made with at least $16 an hour wage, which theoretically 40% average. of cars, 45% of yeah. trucks. That's right. And there's a, there are some credits toward that for where you locate your IT and other 
Um, and the idea was this sort of eliminates Mexico because nobody pays that kind of a wage there, right? And Essentially. Uh, that would be yeah. a misnomer. Yeah. That's completely wrong. Why do you say wrong. that, Joe? All right. So let's say you're a producer. You produce class, right? Mm -hmm. And you feed into both the auto and the U.S. housing supply chains. All right. You've got a factory, one that's very modern and up-to-date, where it's all done basically by machines, and another that's sort of out-of-date with a lot of people, right? All right. You're thinking, okay, how am I going to continue to export in the United States? Well, what you do is you get rid of the workers, right? You create a second factory that's completely automated, right? This idea that that $16 an hour wage floor was going to protect jobs was always uh, a misnomer, right? Mm -hmm. That was always made as a PR stunt made for U.S. public consumption. It's not going to help. As a matter of fact, it only takes about a year or two to get those factories up and running. And we've already had one year of delay because of political considerations inside Washington. So whatever benefits that were out there for U.S. domestic consumption, based on what's essentially protectionism, are slowly beginning to narrow. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's see. I might add one thing to that, too. It's not strictly the $16 an hour. 10% of that value can come from high-wage R&D people. Mm -hmm. So if uh, Ford or GM or uh, Tier 1 puts a plant and uh, facility with $100,000 a year engineers down there, some of that can count into the $16. Well, and a, there's a 5% yeah. credit for where you manufacture as well. Yeah. So if, of that 40 or 45%, 15% can be met with credits. Yeah. I'd like to make one point on that, though. The requirement for the $16 wage is on the OEM. It's not on the supplier. So I, I represent a lot of suppliers, so I think the suppliers would like to take the viewpoint that the OEMs will get this $16 by themselves, maybe from their own plants. Uh, however, it's realistic. They may be looking to the suppliers, but it's not part of the agreement that the uh, obligation is on the OEMs to meet the $16. But the logic of all this is, yeah. is that it's, there's an expectation that Mexican firms are not dynamic, that they're mm -hmm. static. That's simply not the case. They, too, can adapt to the high the sort of what I call high technology conditions and standards of global production, which then causes the cost of this to go down, right? Creating lateral pressures for glass makers or other, other producers here in the United States. This was one of the reasons why from the beginning as I looked at the attempt to renegotiate NAFTA, it just didn't make a lot of sense. We were better off just going with TPP as it was, but, hey, this is, this is now water under the bridge, and we're all going to have to adjust to it going forward. Well, I mean, President Trump ran on this as part of his platform. He was going to rip up NAFTA. He was going to renegotiate. He was going to bring jobs back to America. Is this yeah. going to bring jobs, manufacturing jobs? Let's, this is an automotive show. Is it going to bring automotive manufacturing jobs back to the United States? Well, look, I think the entire trade war, whether it's with the NAFTA countries, whether it's with Europe or whether it's with China, and the tributaries there. It's one big audacious attempt to repatriate supply chains. That's clearly not working. It's clearly not going to happen. The economics of it just don't make sense. If you're GM, right, and your biggest export market for your, your automobiles is China, you need to be in those supply chains. You're not going to bring them back. Yeah. Right. So when you take a look at what's going on with NAFTA, I think the most important thing is that we don't withdraw from it. NAFTA is far more important than our trade with China, which is why it's somewhat disappointing that we haven't seen more movement on this in the Congress. Because I think the bigger risk is that it doesn't get done, 
and then political considerations take over. They just wipe out whatever economic and financial considerations are there, and then Mr. Trump acts as he needs, as he sees fit. Well, let, and we'll, we need to get into that more too. But Kristen, what do you think? Is this uh, USMCA, if it's enacted, going to bring more manufacturing, automotive manufacturing jobs back to the U.S.? Well, I think the time frame is really important too. I mean, this was targeted to start uh, January first, twenty twenty. Doesn't look like that target is within reach uh, right now with the political considerations in the Congress. So. You know, as we, uh, if it becomes enacted with a, you know, three-year and five-year grow-in periods, um, we may be very deep into a recession or coming out of a recession on the other side by the time all of these requirements take hold. So it's really difficult to say if we're in a uh, downward market, are we going to be bringing more stuff back here? What we can see um, from recent trade data, we looked um, at the first six months of 2018 versus the first six months of 2019. Um, did that because the, most of the China tariffs on auto took hold in July and September last year that affect the auto industry. And we see, you know, a lot of China trade is down in many of those um, trade codes. And we see rest of world imports to the U.S. increasing. And I thought, well, is any of that coming from Mexico? A lot of it is coming from Mexico. So we see not a resourcing back to the U.S., but a resourcing to Mexico. Hmm. And, and Les, well, what do you think? Is yeah, this I, going to bring back more U.S. Trade? I agree. And I think, uh, am I correct, the U.S. Uh, International Trade Commission did a study, and I think they felt that there was going to be a, a net increase in jobs. You know, this was a prerequisite to it passing Congress. Well, uh, if, they, if they eliminate the uncertainty. The uncertainty right. principle was what right. turned it to positive. And she yeah. really makes a, a, just a fantastic point. The yeah. broader trade war, right, is resulting in supply chain shifting, not to the United States, but out of China to the rest of the world. That's why you've seen the trade gap with Indonesia, Vietnam, Malaysia actually increase. And I'm not surprised, and I'm sure neither are you two, that Mexico has been one of the prime beneficiaries of the trade war that's broken out with China. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why is the USMCA stuck in Congress? I think there's three reasons, right? First is, is that the Democrats have significant problems with environmental and labor standards actually being enforced. These are untested, they're new, and right now the leadership in the House is just not convinced. And second, this goes back to TPP, they have real problems with the way pharma is organized inside, inside TPP and was just basically cut, pasted, and lifted onto to the new NAFTA. Until those get resolved, it just may be next the next session of Congress till this gets addressed. Right. Well, and you have groups, you know, labor groups, environmental groups, consumer groups that are lining up opposed mm. to. Uh, of course, they were opposed to NAFTA too, mm. right? Well, it, doesn't AFL USMCA improve it in any way? AFL-CIO yeah. was neutral on NAFTA in uh, the 1990s, so you know they and they're they're remaining neutral right now. Um, but they're saying we've got significant concerns, and if they're not addressed, we will be negative. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a change from where they were in the 90s. Yeah. Well, I've been involved a lot in lobbying. I'm going back Wednesday to participate in the MEMA fly-in lobby day where we're going to see lots of people in Congress. I think, this is my opinion, that, yes, labor is a big issue with the Democrats, but we've never seen labor get more in any kind of trade agreement. It wasn't in NAFTA at all, only a side agreement. They have this minimum wage, uh, and also the country had to pass protection for union organization. So I think, you know, in, in a way, labor has gotten a lot, uh, more than ever in, in before. So, I think Mr. Lighthizer yeah. is dependent upon organized labor to support this in order to get it right. passed. Yeah. And organized labor has issues with, you know, environment, 
labor and pharma, but they also have larger issues around the digitalization of the U.S. economy, what the digital economy will do going forward, and where organized labor's relative place in that, that new economy is. And so, yeah, this is, this is, the Trump administration's really going to have to do some heavy lifting to get this done in this session of Congress. Isn't part of the yep. problem, too, the Democrats would be loath to give President Trump a victory? Isn't that a, a factor, especially going into a presidential election year? That's politics I'm staying out of. Okay. <laughs> well, I have heard that uh, Speaker Pelosi, despite her disagreements with President Trump, wants to see this passed, and she respects Ambassador Lighthizer. So I think that's a good sign. And uh, another hot issue is enforcement. You know, a lot of people are saying, well, you put all these labor and environment, we want to see how they're enforced. So if they, if there's been a lot of meetings back and forth during the recess between uh, the Democratic uh, committee, they had a group of, from the caucus meeting with Ways and Means. So if they get what they want in enforcement, I, I think she'll give the green light. I think, I think one of the real concerns there, though, is can they get what they want inside agreements and adjustments to the agreement, or do they send them back to the table? Mm. And many of labor's concerns, as they stand now, are go back to the table kinds of issues, and no one wants to do that. Yeah. And so, you know, if you get into that, you're in a, in a real stalemate. I tell you, I spend way, way too much time, more than I ever wanted or expected in Washington, D.C. And the two things that stick out for me as an economist, and I'm going to look at it at a different framework than these two will, one, the private sector is now hiring at less than 100000 per month. That means the unemployment rate is going to be going up soon. Two, we're already in a domestic manufacturing recession on top of a global manufacturing recession that was largely triggered by the trade war. It seems to me it's hard to believe that the Democrats are just going to go along with this without extracting major changes to the document. And perhaps that's just a bridge too far for Mr. Trump, but we'll have to see how this plays out. Yeah, well, that's what do you think. Well, I'm optimistic. I think it's going to pass. I'll buy each of you a lunch or something when we <laughs> meet again. But on the other side, Congresswoman Rosa Delario, who is a labor supporter, she said next year. So that fits in with you, that they're mm -hmm. going to push it back until they get more. So, but it, it, uh, that, that pushes it into a presidential election yeah. year, and mm -hmm. woo. Yeah, Nothing's going to get done next year. What she really means is next session. Yeah. Okay, if and when it's enacted, how soon would the provisions kick in? I, and I'm, of course, more interested in the automotive industry, this show being about that. Well, most of them are on three-year uh, transition periods. Uh, you know, the, the steel aluminum rule is a day one rule, um, but the parts content rules are mostly three years. The automakers have the opportunity to file alternative uh, staging plans, or, you know, if they've got a credible plan to get there over five years, they can have a plan with the USTR uh, to get there over five years. Uh, so the only thing that sticks out in the agreement as a five-year to grow in is the, um, the battery content rule. Advanced batteries have to meet 75% content over, uh, over a five-year grow in. Everything else is three years unless they have this alternative staging agreement. Right. And I don't want to get too much into details, but they've divided it into core parts, which are things like engines and transmissions, suspensions, principal parts, which include brakes and motors, starter motors, and then the complementary parts, which are mostly everything else. So um, all of them that have a, a, this 2023 phase in, and they have to get to 75% for the core parts and principal uh, core parts and uh, uh, principal part, 70%, and the complementary part, 65%. So they have a nice phase in. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But 2023 is based on a 2020 start. So yeah. it's three yeah. years Push from, back. Three years from when they right. implemented By the way, it's a very good chart from her group that they put this together. Yeah. I to give you credit, <laughs> well, but it's you. very good from Joe, uh, our group. Kristen raised yeah. the, the issue of electric vehicle batteries. That's been one of the concerns that China and Europe are going headfirst into the EV market. They're going to build up the supply chain. The U.S. is going to be left out. There's talk that the USMCA is going to force the creation of a EV supply chain in the United States. How do you read it? Well, I think we want to be careful what we wish for, right? I'm just old enough to remember the Japanese making some extraordinarily bad bets around televisions and automobiles in the 80s and 90s. I think that we're better off letting these markets develop so that we arrive at a standard that's sustainable and one in which we can evolve. So... My sense here is is that there's a little bit too much noise around this, right? Let the Europeans and Chinese make mistakes. Look, the Chinese already think they've arrived at the standard for artificial intelligence. No. Let them spend trillions of dollars trying to enforce that standard. They want to do the same thing around batteries? I'm fine with that. We'll out-innovate them. We'll outperform them. Over time, we'll own that market, but we'll do it the right way. Yeah, Kristen, what do you think? Well, I think, you know, one of the concerns here is, you know, trade has created a lot of uncertainty in the auto industry. Um, we don't know what the sourcing rules are going to be, where people should be investing. Um, but we also have great uncertainty on fuel economy and greenhouse gas regulations and, you know, an antitrust case that was just filed. Um, so, you know, is the market there in the U.S. for electric vehicles without subsidies that have been phased out for two of the largest producers without uh, aggressive greenhouse gas and uh, fuel economy rules. Um, you know, they have to have people who want to buy those vehicles before we have enough, um, you know, uh, before we start worrying about building up a supply chain. Before we have right, enough, right? you know, uh, critical mass to have the full supply chain here for batteries. And, you know, the other thing is a lot of the battery electric vehicles made in the U.S. are sold in the U.S., don't mm-hmm. cross a border. Mm-hmm. Um, so there would have to be um, something put in place that would make those have to conform with USMCA rules. Uh, otherwise, they're not crossing a border and won't trigger USMCA if I could add something, too. I think the China 301 is really more focused on the electric vehicle. What, what's because the 301? The 301 case was an action brought by the president under Section 301, basically imposing all these tariffs, 25 percent, 10 percent, based on the on fact intellectual that property. Yeah. intellectual property. But one of the key issues, and people can apply for exclusion, so I'm familiar with this, is the China 2025 plan. And that plan is to get China to take over the electric vehicle market. And that's one of the reasons the 301 case was brought, because China is putting all the resources of their big economy to push this electrical vehicle. So those tariffs under 301 are kind of uh, counteracting that. That's the idea. Well, and, and, China maybe, has, and China maybe. has market level well, levers maybe. that we don't have. It's sort of the say. way the Japanese plowed into plasma but never thought about high definition, right? Yeah. Let mm-hmm. them do some of these things. Now, Kristen's spot on here. It's not just the uncertainty, it's the uncertainty tax that's been imposed on U.S. manufacturing in general and the automotive industry in particular. Look, in the second quarter of the year, outlays on fixed business investment, this is critical productivity enhancing material, software, uh, machines, intellectual property, declined by 6.1%. What caused that? It's the trade po- shift in trade policy. Until this is rolled back, that uncertainty tax is just not going to be lifted at a time when the industry is thinking about consolidation, thinking about the partnerships like the one between Ford and VW, right? Mm-hmm. 
really starting to think about what the future looks like 20, 25 years out. We're not going to be able to get there. We're not going to be able to get started. That's why that's all got to be rolled back. Uh, there's been talk maybe Trump, if he didn't get his way, would withdraw from NAFTA. Kristen, do you think that's a, a serious threat? Um, I think we have to take it as a serious threat because you don't know. Um, what it does is the president does have the ability to withdraw the U.S. from the NAFTA agreement. Um, Canada and Mexico can remain in it, although they're both in the CPTPP and can trade with each other through that. Um, but it sets in motion a six-month period. Um, so, you know, if we introduce uh, legislation this fall, the Congress, uh, the House has 45 days to consider the bill. And it, he, his threat is about, you know, if things aren't going quite the way he wants them to go, um, that then starts a six-month timer with uh, negotiating the withdrawal of the U.S. from NAFTA. Um, that puts you right before the election if, you know, all of that timing works out. So I don't know. You have to take him at his word because he's done things that he said he was going to do. So yeah. you have to and plan for it. Done a lot of, or not done a lot of things he said he was going to yeah, do as well. Have, so that, that's, that's, there's another uncertainty I, factor. I remember I was sitting in my office one day, and all of a sudden I started getting these calls. There's a rumor that tomorrow morning President Trump is going to withdraw from NAFTA. And all of the groups, MEMA, National Association mm -hmm. of Manufacturers, started making calls with their CEOs, okay. the president president of Mexico, prime minister of Canada, and he changed his mind. But that was a kind of threat that was real, very real. People he did were really say it was worried. the one thing he regretted. He was, uh, he was in an interview with Leslie Stahl on 60 Minutes. He said one thing of his presidency that he regretted is that he didn't pull out of NAFTA earlier. <laughs> so this is the thing. Yeah. All, China gets all the noise. It's like the lead story a lot. It moves markets. Mm -hmm. NAFTA is far more important. It's far more important for the country, for the economy in the auto industry. We don't have an American supply chain. We have a North American supply chain, right? You can't just eradicate this in a few years. He pulls out of NAFTA, perhaps it passes, perhaps the Supreme Court doesn't get involved. That's okay. It's a one-way ticket back to his private residence on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. Yeah. Les, what about these uh, uh, threatened tariffs on imported cars, not just from China, but from Europe? I mean, the, the, the 232. Little, and Japan. The, the 232, yeah. Yeah. This right. is very interesting how this all plays in. The president announced this 232 uh, tariff uh, under this act that gives the president the power to raise tariffs when there's a, a national emergency to the a threat to the national defense. He did it first with steel and aluminum. And uh, Mexico and, and Canada are now out of that one as part of the USMCA negotiation. But they're still theoretically under this 232 on automotive when and if it takes effect. But there are some side letters that they negotiated to give them a certain minimum amount of cars and parts that they could bring in exempt from the 232. So... Um, and now Japan is trying to get exempt from it in their agreement. So maybe the only people left that aren't exempt from it are maybe Sweden and, and you know, England and a few other countries. Well, I uh, think the exemptions are a little bit overdone. Yeah. Uh -huh. So look, yeah. I expect the U.S. economy to grow at about 1.2 to 1.5% in the second half of the year. Uh -huh. We're not at risk of an imminent recession, despite uh -huh. the manufacturing recession that's rolling through the U.S. economy. Uh -huh. Mr. Trump goes ahead and puts tariffs on imports from Europe, uh -huh. Germany, uh -huh. right, and the UK doesn't exempt Japan, we're going to have a very different call about the risks around the outlook in the first half of next year. Uh -huh. When you take a look at the economic relationship between Germany, South Carolina, and Alabama, uh -huh. you can see how those global supply chains 
we're now part of them. Mm-hmm. You can't do this without creating undue risk, excessive uncertainty, mm-hmm. and cause unemployment to increase. This is just the reality of what the world we're in now. Well, when we looked at all of the tariffs and trade policies all added up on the auto industry, um, it adds about $2,750 to the cost of each vehicle. Um, a domestically produced vehicle goes up about $1,900. 90% of that impact is coming from the imposition of 232 tariffs on all of our trading partners where we don't have a free trade agreement. So that would be everyone except Canada, Mexico, and South Korea. Yeah. And yet we've got a 25% import tariff on pickup trucks. Yes, we do. All trucks. Mm-hmm. GM, Ford, and Chrysler probably would not exist today without the profits they make on those trucks that are protected mm-hmm. by those import tariffs. Why not do the same thing on the, the passenger car You know, side? there's a real difference, I think. You know, those, the pickup trucks that we make here in North America are largely for North American consumption. They're not produced in other vehicle markets. They're not the supply chain's very regional here in North America. All of our cars and CUVs are on global platforms mm-hmm. with global supply chains. So, you know, the, you know, the C platform for any pr- given manufacturer may have seven or eight different production outlets or production sites in the world. Um, and they may have, you know, six or seven different models that they put on that platform across the world. So when they pick something like, you know, as non-distinct as a windshield wiper motor, is it going to be different for the one plant that they're supplying here in, the North, in North America? Or is it going to be the same windshield wiper motor that they're putting on in the plant here, the plant in Europe, the plant in China, the plant in India? Um, you know, so, you know, that globalization of the platform strategy for cars and CUVs is very, very different than body and, and frame trucks. This is critical at a time when we've got slowing auto sales and there are too many cars in the lots. We have an inventory problem in the auto industry. I think that's widely acknowledged. If you go ahead and impose those sorts of costs on American consumers, so $27.50 for domestically imported cars, 4000 not domestically imported, but domestic cars, 4,000 for imported cars, that completely wipes out all of the benefits from the 2017 tax cut. Mm-hmm. You now are basically taking your trade policy and making American households pay for it. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and I, we're down to the very end. We, okay, I want to add something on that 232 uh, on the auto. It's supposed to protect the auto industry. There was a hearing about this in Washington. 45 people showed up, 43 were against it. Uh, the only ones that were for it was the UAW. So the auto industry is against the tariff that's being recommended to protect them. So, even the I, UAW I was measured in their yeah, support. Yeah. So real good with that. I'm afraid we're going to have to <laughs> ri- uh, wrap it up. But Kristen okay. Dijak, thank you so much. Uh, Les Glick, Joe Brasuelas, very interesting discussion. Really appreciate your insights. Thank you. Thank, thank, you. thank you, John. Underwriting for the production of AutoLine this week has been provided by RSM. Prepare for challenges specific to your business by working with trusted advisors who help turn obstacles into opportunities. Experience the power of being understood. RSM, audit, tax and consulting for the middle market.